I've been in this class I, uh, for the last few weeks, and we're doing a lot of reading of various Buddhist um, essays from from over the centuries, dating back to like 11th century Japan and through today. And um, it's really interesting. And um, we've had to do writing as well. And what's come up for me in some of the writing assignments has been uh, thinking about the fetters, which you may or may not have heard of. And I have this sense that I've spoken about them recently, but I can't, um, I couldn't find anything that I did. So it might just be me hallucinating. But uh, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about it and tell a couple of stories and then um, see where we end up. The fetters, fetter is, is a word that we kind of use a little bit, but it means um, originally when it was first uh, introduced, it meant to um, confine someone's motion. And, and in Buddhist terminology, it pretty much means um, to tie us to suffering. It's something that keeps us um, stuck, keeps us uh, stuck in beliefs and attitudes that bind us to ignorance and block our awakening. It keeps us, like I said, it keeps us stuck. It's the way we move through the world that's not wise, not skillful, that's caught in craving, that's caught in aversion, ignorance, and that'll keep us from liberation. And so there are many, many, many lists in the Pali Canon, in the, in the, uh, the suttas, uh, the discourses of the Buddha. And there are um, a lot of the lists of fetters. They're not 100%. It's not always these 10. It's, they're, they're very similar. Like they, there's often ill will or anger aversion, um, greed, jealousy, lust, restlessness, ignorance. Those are, those are, those are very, very common, but there's three that are kind of key. And in fact, they're even, even mentioned on their own. And, um, when you're in, in, in the Pali, um, in the Theravada teachings, cause I think you might all know there's different schools of Buddhism and Theravada is the lineage of the elders that kind of trace the, their beliefs back to the earliest writings. And in those, those um, suttas, the, uh, um, there's a, this way to awakening called, there's this, this path to enlightenment. And the first, pa- first step on this path to enlightenment is called stream entry. And as you progress to liberation, all these different fetters disappear until finally you have no fetters left and you're and you're totally awakened, enlightened. So the first the first one is called stream entry. That means you're just you're getting in the flow. You're on your way. And when you uh, move into stream entry, the three fetters that drop away there. And these are the three I want to talk about tonight are belief in a self in this fixed self. Um, doubt and uh, attachment to rites and rituals. So I'll, I'll talk about each of these in their turn. Um, there's also one other set of fetters, which is just in, described in this one sutta as uh, fetters for householders. 
um, because most of the suttas were directed toward monastics, but there are a few that are for householders, which what we are, unless, unless you're a monastic, which I don't think any of you are. Um, we have to live, we live in the world, um, like people who have to maintain a household, which is why it's, uh, called householders. And that is pretty much those fetters for householders are really very much, uh, aligned with the precepts, not taking a life, not stealing, not, not, um, using false speech, being wise with your speech, um, not coveting or being greedy watching aversion, anger, and conceit. So you can see there's a lot of different things, but they all kind of have the same basis of craving and aversion and um, um, not acting wisely or skillfully. It's when you're caught in ignorance, basically, is when you're stuck in these fetters. Uh, so what I want to talk about a little bit is these first three, and they're really key. The first, the first one, belief in a self, is can be one of the most misunderstood ideas of Buddhist teaching. This idea that there's no fixed self, because in the teaching we are pretty much. Um, conditioned beings and the teaching of the Buddha is that there's a continual everything is dynamic and in relation to everything else because of this this happens if my parents hadn't met I would not be here if I hadn't um, if my brother hadn't sent me a plane ticket when I was 18 I would not have moved from New York to California I would not have done this I would not so it everything is so interdependent with so many other things and how we view the world is very dependent on um, our upbringing, our, our, our environment, our DNA, our, our whole history. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's so many things are dependent on so many other things. And in the time of the Buddha, there was very much the idea of a fixed self, Atman in, um, in, in Sanskrit and is part of the Hindu teachings. And so there was this essence that carried on this essence of me, whoever I am, not obviously I'm not Mary in every, in every lifetime, but this internal essence that got carried on. Um, what did they say? All you did when you took rebirth, all you did was put a new suit on your essence. But that's not what the Buddha taught. He taught the nata, which is like um, uh, not Atman. Atman was the, the this Hindu word for this essence, and his is not that. Um, and that's a real main teaching. And so uh, this idea that there is this fixed self, and not necessarily a belief that there's some core inside, that continues from one lifetime to the next or, or even stays the same throughout our lifetime. But these ideas um, that we take birth as things, that we become these people who put on these personas, these identities, and we carry those around, whether we actually um, exhibit the qualities that we want or there's something we strive for or aspire to, we have this idea. 
And that is what we become attached to. So this invitation to let go of this idea of a fixed self can be really challenging because as with so many of these things, we don't see it. We're caught, you know, we're caught in moving around the world and it's just kind of hanging back here in the back of our head. And it's what it what it's what drives us so many times. Um, it, it drives our internal atmosphere, our moods. Um, it drives how we behave to, towards others. So that's a, a key thing. And I'll, I'm going to talk a little bit in a, in a little bit, I'll talk a bit more about that after I go through a description of the rest of these these next two. So um, the next one is doubt. Uh, and doubt is what binds you to um, can bind you to again this cycle of of, of uh, craving and aversion and just being stuck on things. And the doubt they talk about here is, is very similar to the doubt that's one of the hindrances. This um, uh, wavering of the mind, this lack of, I was looking at Analia, who's a great teacher, and he's talking about how um, doubt is a mental obstruction in regard to the development of tranquility and as well as liberating insight. So when you have this questioning when you know when you're restless or worried, there's a flavor of doubt, and that keeps you from being tranquil. And so there's this lack of clarity, this lack of vague, vague this not lack of vagueness, this vagueness, this inability to move in a particular direction, uh, this inability to see what's wise or skillful or what's not wise and skillful. It's that that dullness that. Um, Again, lack of clarity causes doubt. Uh, there's doubt in the teachings, doubt in your capability of, of, of moving along this path. This, uh, you're doubting your ability to, to do what needs to be done. Um, it's the opposite of, of, of concentration and tranquility because there's the what if, shoulda, coulda, wouldas that just pile up. It's like, ah, oh, should I have done that? And well, there's doubt is like the should I do it? Which path should I choose? Which fork should I take? Should I quit my job? Should I not quit my job? Should I leave this relationship? Should I not leave this relationship? Should I take this job? Should I should I move here? Should I sell my house? Should I buy blah 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 blah? All of those things. Doubt it causes so much agitation. And then you do something, and then there's the doubt on the other side. Why did I do that? Should I have done that? Should I have picked the other one? Blah, 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 blah. I had, I remember one time trying to figure out one, I don't even remember what I was doing. It was kind of a big thing in my life, but I was like, what if, what if I do this and this? And what if I, do? and my husband says, you're just, you're, you're making a choice, not a mistake. And so it was like, oh, I thought, you know, there was, there's only one right answer in the entire world for each question. There's only one right path to choose. And if I don't choose the correct path, I'm screwed. And so that sets up, that's a real fertile ground for doubt and questioning and what ifing. And that's a painful place to be. So doubt falls away 
as you move into stream entry because you are now you become grounded and say, you know what? This is going to work. This is going to work. I'm going to follow this path. It's a, it's a place of faith. It's a place of trust, you know, which is one of the uh, um, five, five spiritual faculties. The first one is faith. It's this trust. It's like taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, taking, trusting that it worked for the Buddha. The Buddha said, do this. I wouldn't tell you to do it if I didn't think it would, if it was possible. So trusting that, even if you can't see everything, taking the steps in that direction. And so that's when doubt is lifted, is when you really go, okay, I'm, I'm in. Um, I'm in, I'm, I'm, I'm buying this Four Noble Truths, I'm buying this Eightfold Path, I'm buying this Loving Kindness, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk in this direction. So that's, that's the doubt they're talking about here. And then the last one, rites and rituals, is interesting. Um, it's not necessarily being stuck on, you know, chanting or no chanting or candles or no candles or bowing or no bowing. Um, it, it, originally, it was um, uh, kind of going th um, just a mechanical view of these teachings and, and re doing things because you're supposed to. You know, it's like it's like when you're a kid, do it because I told you to do it, but without any real awareness of why you're doing things, just because. And so that's when you're caught up on... Um, you're not understanding the underlying intention or the underlying pr principles. So you get, um, there's the precepts, which is like, don't take a life, um, you know, be wise in your speech, uh, don't take what's not offered, and so on. Don't just do it because they say to do it, but have this awareness and understand, oh, if I do this, it will cause harm. And there's that that connection, that empathy, that compassion. It's not just a surface. It's not just going through the motions, which, you know, so many people, so many people, not just today, but forever go through the motions. They, they don't walk the talk. They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. You know, they, they say one thing and they do another. That's an attachment to, um, you know, a, a, a way of doing something um, just because it's written to do it that way, but without any, um, any, uh, any real adherence to the underlying idea of why it's supposed to be that way. Another way you get caught up in the... Um, rites and rituals is thinking things have to be a certain way like certain if you don't sit a certain way in meditation if you don't hold your hands a certain way in meditation it's not going to work and again in a historical context as I was listening to a, a monk give a talk around this and he was saying that back in the time of the Buddha the Brahmins the Hindu the Brahmins were um, believed that if you did a ritual exactly perfectly, then the gods had to give you what you were asking for. I mean, it was like guaranteed. So that became really rigid. So that's when you get into this place of rigidity and dogma. And that's what the Buddha was um, kind of 
pushing against when he said, let go of those rites and rituals, because that's not how it works. You know, so letting go of that rigidity and really coming to an understanding of it and an awareness of where you're moving towards rather than the mechanism to get there. And so dropping that stuff and, and, and the teaching around the raft, that very famous sutta about, you know, you use the raft to get from one side, from one shore to the other. But once you cross the river, you don't need to keep dragging that raft around with you. It makes no sense. So you leave it on the far shore once you've crossed the river. And that's but if you're still tied to this ritual, then you're going to drag this raft with you which makes no sense. And so that is, it's really all about um, the cultivation of wisdom as you, as you begin to see clearly. And, and also in doubt is like there's discernment. It's not just do it because I say so. Um, oh, I'm going back to doubt, but there's this, there's this cultivation of wisdom. So in doubt, you have discernment. You say, is that really true? Yes, no. You see what's skillful, you see what's not skillful. In rites and rituals, letting go of those, you're, you're actually moving into the teachings and embodying those rather than stuck on the form. And so the forms fall away as you move into stream entry too. And so that is, is um, a way to look at... Um, uh, a way to investigate how you're moving through the world and if you're moving away from liberation or towards liberation. So I said I wanted to tell a story, and some of you have heard parts of this story before because it's um, my story, and I because it's me and I talk a lot in these classes, I tell this story a lot because it was quite profound for me. But it's, it's, it's pretty much around this... Um, idea of self and how it's really easy to get um, stuck in an idea of self and uh, how important it is to recognize when we're stuck and to let go. So I, I went to school, uh, I went to college and I studied archaeology and then um, I went to graduate school and I studied ancient history and archaeology and that's kind of I didn't have a vision for my life I just knew I wanted to study that and so I just kept going and I got my my master's and um, I kept going um, without an idea of where I was going but I was also drinking a lot at the time and I ended up drinking my way out of graduate school so that door on being an archaeologist kind of shut behind me but it was um, the, the, the time I spent doing it was a lot of fun and um, it was cool I used the word cool for because that was the word I used um, even though I don't believe there's any such thing as cool that's another fixed idea, but that's another Dharma talk. Um, 
so I thought the idea of being an archaeologist was really cool. And so I went through my life. I got I got sober. I got married. I had a job. And I used to talk a lot about I used to be an archaeologist. I, I had a real attachment to that identity. And I thought it was really important for people to know that about me. Um, I don't just do this, what I'm doing here. I used to do that kind of a way to puff myself up. And because I, because internally there was, um, yeah, there was a, a lot of uh, self-doubt and um, it, it was a way to puff myself up. And so fast forward, that was the early 80s that I kind of walked away from that. And fast forward to um, the late 90s, 2000. And I still kept in contact with my old professor from UCLA. And I remember one time I told him, because I'm the, you know, when you have a fight, flight, or freeze person, I'm the flight person. And I don't know what was going on in my life at that time. But I told him, I said, I'm going to run away and come to Syria one year when you're in Syria, because we would excavate in Syria. And he said, oh, okay. But what happened is he remembered that. And a couple of years later, or a year later, he emailed me and invited me to go back to Syria to do a project this one season in the field. And I was like, yeah, I'm now this again. And I was able to arrange it with the job I was at because I was a contract so I could leave for a couple of months and then come back. And I was like, I got all puffed up again. And I went and then they wanted me to come back the next year. So that went on for a number of years. And I kept going back, and um, then one year uh, I did the. I started. I started sitting, and I did the year to live practice. And so I said, "All right, um, if I'm going to uh, if I'm going to die next April, then I'm going to go to Syria, and I'm going to spend two months here, the whole season, and stay and work on a work on a publication, and have that done by the time I die." And the only thing was that I uh, got to Syria that year. And the day I arrived, I realized if I only have a year to live, I don't want to be here. I want to be home. I want to be with my family. I want to be with my friends. And it was painful. It was so painful because what had happened is I came face to face with the reality of who I was and what I wanted to be. And I had I had gotten into serious practice over these few years that I was doing archaeology, that kind of uh, getting back into archaeology and my and my serious practice kind of came at the same time. And so I was at this point that I was like, I actually don't enjoy doing this anymore. I enjoy telling people I do it more than I actually enjoy doing it. And it was so painful, and but I stuck it out because my husband was coming at the end of the season, at the in the end of the two months, and um, he already had his plane tickets. And I'm like, okay. So I managed to get through those two months and get back home and go, wow, what am I going to do? I, I'm done with that. I don't want to do that. But internally, the intellectual acknowledgement of being done and the internal awareness and willingness to let go 
was quite a journey and we're quite far apart. So we got the season, got back from the season in October. Next summer rolls around and it's like the chitty, the chatter about, oh, getting ready to go on the excavation and talking and planning. And I'm like, I don't want to go. I can't not go. I don't want to go. I'm going to miss out. FOMO was really strong. Um, because it's fun. Like I said, the whole, the idea of it is fun. The actual doing of it had lost its, its sheen for me. And what ended up happening is I went back for three more weeks. I went back again that next year, but thankfully for three more weeks. And I actually, this afternoon I went and I looked at my journal because I was like, all right, Mary, um, what did you say? And I'm like, I'm so over it. I am so over this. I am so over this. And of course, every day the temperature was 110. I was like, it's 110 again. It's 110 again. It's 100. But that that wasn't the reason. I was just done. I was done with it. But I, I it was so hard to let go. And so that fixed idea who and the, and the pain, the sadness, who will I be if I'm not an archaeologist? Because it's cool. Who will I be? So I was able to wrench myself away and get to a place of saying no. And to move through all those, um, that dissolving of that identity, that, that identity that didn't exist anywhere except in my mind. It wasn't, there's no Mary in here that when I was born, it was etched on something that said archaeologist. That was when the conditions were right, I came and I did that. And when the conditions were not right, I did something else. It's that conditioning, that coming and going. It doesn't mean that just because I always did it, I always have to do it. And um, P.S., I think some of you have heard this too. I did a, took a writing workshop a few years ago and I wrote something up and talked about being being an archaeologist was cool and how hard it was to let go of cool because I had never been cool in my life that was the only cool thing I had to hold on to and when I finished um, reading my piece the teacher said it's funny what you think is cool and I said what and she said archaeology I go archaeology is cool and she goes not in her world and I was like what so I was holding on to this false idea of this being so cool and there's somebody who I really like and admire and we've become good friends since then and she's like, nah, that ain't cool. I could care less. And I'm like, what? So it's um, it's so interesting. But that, that, that attachment to an identity and that's just like a little simple thing. I'm an archaeologist. I'm not an archaeologist. I'm doing it. I'm not doing it. Caused so much suffering. So much suffering. And how many of those do we have in our life that we're not even aware of? You know, the parent, the child, the sibling, the employee, the employer, the friend, the enemy, the, the, the social justice warrior, the this, the that, what all these identities that we think we have to live up to something or we're not living up to something that causes so much suffering and to be willing to let go of that, to investigate the suffering and to let go. It's really... Um, it's really important 
if it weren't so important, the Buddha wouldn't have talked about it so often. You know, fixed views, Sakaya Ditti. I love that. Let go, let go, let go, let go. And just be open to this moment. This moment, I'm a person who's sitting on a cushion on the floor in my house talking to you. That's all. Doesn't have to be anything other than that. That's all. And then to be held in these teachings, to be held in the Four Noble Truths, to be held in the Eightfold Path with a trust, not a doubt, but a trust that continuing on this path will help me to let go of those things. And um, to understand why we do the things we do rather than to just do it because to get stuck in that fundamentalist, rigid way of thinking about stuff, but to be open, to be open. So um, one other piece of this, this, this idea, I was um, doing another piece of writing for this class, and it was, um, uh, I wrote a letter to my cat, Kevin, and pondered whether he was stuck on the fetters did he have a sense of self? Um, was he caught stuck in habits and rituals? And, you know, did he, you know, what, what, that kind of thing. So um, it's, it's funny um, because I had, I had a friend who's a teacher and he talked about his cat, you know, this craving. He said, I know my cat never says, if my tail were fluffier, then I'd be happy, you know. My cats don't do that. And of course, I read that and the teacher pointed out that in Buddhism, being reborn as animals is not a good thing. The animal realm is not a good realm. It's you're, you're doing your karma. There's no chance of, of enlightenment because it's purely instinctual. But I fantasize of, you know, about that because they're not stuck on things because they're run by instinct, but still just that, that reflection, it was fun to say, what would it be like not to? What would it be like just to be in the moment? So that's why I, I think this, this, this investigation of at least these three fetters is really helpful, is really a way, another lens um, to uh, see your life, see where you're stuck, see where you can let go, see where you can surrender to the practice and let go of figuring it all out. So I'm, um, that's, that's all I have to uh, say about those few fetters. Thank you for visiting Undefended Dharma. These teachings are freely offered. However, if you would like to make a donation to help support the technology that makes these podcasts possible, please visit marystancavage.org backslash support. Thank you.